0: Speaking, a monthly podcast on the spoken word. Episode thirteen, february twenty nineteen, releasing the power of the text. A conversation with David Allen Stern. Hello, Paul Meyer here with my latest podcast, a service of Paulmeyer.com, where you'll find all my books, ebooks, and services for spoken word training and coaching. One of my most rewarding projects this past month was a production of Silent Sky by Lauren Gunderson, a play set in the Astronomical Observatory at Harvard around 1900, when the unsung heroes of the advance on astronomy were the predominantly female human computers who mapped the heavens. My work was to assist the actress playing Williamina Fleming, the Scottish emigrant to Boston who was at the centre of those great achievements. I had to judge how much of her Dundee accent might have been replaced by the Boston sounds when we meet her three decades after her emigration at age 21. Wonderful play for four women and one man. So back to this month's topic. I've known David Allen Stern for 30 years. We're both now retired from academia and have had similar careers, David served 25 years as voice and speech trainer in the University of Connecticut's acting programmes and production coach for Connecticut Repertory Theatre. Earlier, he worked 12 years as a freelance Hollywood speech and accent coach while creating the earliest of his famous audio instruction series, the best known being Acting with an Accent and The Speaker's Voice. Among those he's coached for stage or screen roles are Olympia Dukakis, Sally Field, Julie Harris, Terrence Mann, Liam Neeson, Lynn Redgrave, Julie Roberts, and Forrest Whitaker. Newly retired from UConn, David continues coaching productions, teaching via Skype, and creating audio resources. Learn more about him at learnaccent.com. So welcome, David. So very, very nice to be talking to you today. Oh, Thanks so much, Paul. It's a real joy to be here with you. So, when I asked you to do me the honor of joining me on a podcast, I asked you what you'd like to talk about, and I was a little surprised that you didn't choose what you and I are best known for, perhaps, accents and dialects. You chose something else. What is it?
1: Well, I was more interested in getting into something that uh, you yourself started talking about in uh, one of your recent solo podcasts, the one that... I think you called, not what you say, but how you say it. Mm. I've felt for many years, as you know, I just retired from 25 years teaching uh, voice and speech and accents at my alma mater, and during that entire time, I never believed that the thing that I was the best known for, accents and dialects, was anything close to the most important thing that I was doing in the training of actors, that voice production without vocal damage, and clarity and specificity of speech, the ability of actors, and as I'm sure we'll discuss soon, many people other than actors, their ability to first understand the text that they're speaking, whether it's from a script or whether it's spur of the moment, to understand what they are saying and give effectiveness to the act of delivering it through all sorts of vocal components, be they um, vocal variety in pitch and uh, stress and loudness and rhythm and phrasing and pauses and inflections, all of these sorts of things which so many of my students, and I'm sure so many of your students over the years, were not in control of, were never given any instruction in, and had very little experience doing effectively in their offstage speaking or onstage speaking. Exactly.
0: When I was considering this topic in preparation for today's podcast, I I started to think, well, we're really essentially talking about something that's been at the heart of Western civilizations' public speaking traditions for you know two, or three thousand years. It's it's rhetoric. It's it's what was called elocution at the turn of the last century. These are concepts of eloquence, oratorical training, diction, enunciation, the voice beautiful, and these concepts have rather taken a back seat, in my opinion, in our lifetime. I'm, when I went to drama school, I was just post elocution period. The the elocution period was over when I went to drama school in the mid-60s. But my teachers, certainly the older ones, were inheritors of that elocution
1: tradition. How about yourself? Well, when I was in grammar school here in Connecticut, in the same state that I've since returned to, we did an enormous amount of recitation memorization, Longfellow poetry, Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, getting up in front of the class to deliver oral reports. I actually had more of that in grammar school than I had in drama school. When do you think, if it has entirely
0: disappeared from the American curriculum, if it has,
1: when did it go and why? A first guess that jumps into my mind is, uh, television. I was experiencing all of these things in fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, just as television was in its, uh, I wouldn't say its infancy, but it, its toddler stage. Mm-hmm. Over the years, as other kinds of media have become dominant as well, of course, the last few years with smartphones and, uh, Texting and you know walking down the street next to a person and uh, texting back and forth between those people rather than <laughs> speaking or speaking a word or two while each is independently texting to somebody else, but it 's a really important issue that so little actual speaking is done as part of uh, early education and even um, even secondary and post-secondary yes, education. We, we've,
0: we've had writing across the curriculum in, in college and university, but speaking across the curriculum, I don't think that has really
1: caught on. When I was first teaching at the university level, uh, close to where you are, I was in Wichita, Kansas. This was the early 70s. There was both a writing program and what they called basic oral communication program where to receive an undergraduate degree, everyone had to take a speech course that involved getting up and speaking, either a public speaking course or a discussion course of, of some kind. And so much of that has, um, has faded from the requirements or the core curricula of, uh, of so many schools.
0: I think it's got to come back. It'll swing around again, I'm sure. Well, I'm hopeful. (laughs) I remember Garrison Keillor bemoaning the death of poetry memorization and recitation. He looked back on it very fondly in his grammar school education and bemoaned the lack of it, the, the disappearance of it from our lives today.
1: And I might not know the whole poem, but I can still start. Was the schooner Hesperus that sailed the wintry sea, and the skipper had taken his little daughter to bear him company? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah.
0: I too, uh, growing up in England, lots of memorization, lots of recitation, lots of lots of public speaking in the in the curriculum. It's gone now. So um, all of this impinges on the training that you and I do, not only for the, for the actors in our charge, but for many people in professional walks of life that involve speaking for a living, preachers, lawyers, politicians, company execs, professors and lecturers, you name it, as well as so-called ordinary people who don't speak for a living professionally, but who want to communicate better, more effectively, do well in job interviews and in presentations that they do for their company, perhaps. It's so important that people speak well and eloquently. These concepts of eloquence uh, are not unimportant, but it seems that they are, even to the point where eloquence is decried. I think someone was talking about Obama in the early days of his presidency and criticizing him for his eloquence. They actually used eloquent as a pejorative term.
1: Isn't that disgusting?
0: (laughs) Why one would decry the use of eloquence is beyond me, and it's it's got to reverse. It's got to swing back around, I'm sure. So let's get to the approach that you take. I know you use the word variety a great deal, and this seems to me a a very old-fashioned and almost eternal acknowledgement of the validity of giving architectural form and scope and scale to one's speech, to, to use a variety of pace and pitch and and all of the other dynamics that are at our disposal, but so talk to us a little bit about the need for variety and what it confers upon persuasive, memorable, vivid speaking.
1: The phrase that I use, the core of what I do in uh, text classes, is um, something comes from a, a poster that represents my uh, uh, my philosophy of text analysis. And I've sort of paraphrased a statement that comes from uh, casting director, author. I'm sure you're um, you're familiar with Michael Shurtleff, mm-hmm. who's who said in one of his books that consistency is the death of acting. <laughs> Michael and I used to send students to each other back in in my Hollywood days, and uh, I started thinking so much about some of the principles and. I started reforming one of them with regard to my whole issue of vocal variety, and I came up with vocal sameness is the death of acting. Hmm. Or of all communication, I I expect you to Of all communication, yes. I realized years later that when I was continuing to work with uh, clergy, with business people, uh, bankers, Uh, the occasional politician, that the identical principle applied and that, in fact, some of the concepts from acting came into the whole idea of not only how one uses vocal variety, but how one uses vocal variety to support a sense of spontaneity, even if the speaker is reading from text. I mean, that's something that Obama was just a master at. Indeed, reading from the prompter and giving the impression that the thoughts, the ideas, were being created and sequenced in the moment. Yes, he
0: and was, as if he was coining them and minting them freshly yeah, in his exa- brain at the very
1: moment that he exactly. spoke them. Exactly. So what I've come up with over the years and refined it, I say that images. Ideas or actions, if we're talking from an acting perspective, cannot be differentiated and energized by spewing out same-sounding syllables. What do I mean by same-sounding syllables? Well, let me use something that a lot of people are familiar with but perhaps not really clear about what the meaning of, of, of these words are talk about recitation in schools, one of the things we had to memorize was the preamble to the Constitution of the United States. The way that most of my classmates uh, recited it, and the way I hear it uh, read or recited now, is we, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, Establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity to ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America.
0: Completely undifferentiated. The ideas what? and the images
1: are completely undifferentiated. Aren't they? Yeah. What the hell was that all about? It's as bad as the way... Some people would do, if it were done, once it's done, then to well, it were done quickly. If the assassination could trammel up the consequence and catch with it, you know, beautifully rounded tones, but no clarity whatsoever about mm. what the ideas are. No thought behind the eyes. Yeah. And there are all sorts of principles that are violated. First of all, there are so many phrases, so many short phrases in the preamble. And the way that it's spoken by most people There's no clarity as to how each phrase relates to the one before it, the one after it, or the one uh, at the beginning. Just looking at the core of this, the subject of the sentence, we the people of the United States, and then there are three and a half lines before you get to the verb. So the, the core of the sentence is, the skeleton of the sentence is, we the people of the United States do something. Yes. What do we do to ordain we, the and people establish. of the United States exactly we ordain and establish this constitution, so in a sense,
0: the long list of things that we hope to procure the perfect union, the justice, the domestic tranquillity those are inessential in a sense they could be
1: deleted without destroying the grammar and exactly it's the justification. In fact, a lot of people read that there's a there's a list of reasons why we're doing this in order to do six things. What are those things? Form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure tranquility, provide defense, promote welfare, secure liberty. Now, the way an awful lot of people read it, they don't even get that clear. They get we the people of the United States in order to form a more perfect union. And then the list that follows seems like it is modifying in order to form a more perfect union, what do we do? No. In order to form a more perfect union, we establish justice, we ensure trans- No. Forming the more perfect union is the first in the list of things that we do. So we, the people of the United States, do something. Now, why do we do it? In order to... X, Y, Z, in order to form a more perfect union, what else? Establish justice, what else? Ensure domestic tranquility. So the principle that I would go by in teaching somebody to speak this list of phrases is to find, discover, or an alternative, reveal to the listener each of these things at a different pitch,
0: you remind me, David, of the importance of the study of rhetoric, not to learn the endless names for all the rhetorical figures, but simply to recognize that something rhetorical is going on. Many people would not recognize that what we have here in this opening sentence of the preamble is in fact a, a time honored and very effective rhetorical device, a list. Not only is <laughs> everything in the list important, but they have a cumulative effect and perhaps one might even argue that they're in ascending order of importance. With the, uh, the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, it might be the the crowning glory, of the enterprise. So there's that ability to use a list for,
1: a tremendous strategy for persuasion or any. ...figures of speech, which are also referred to as rhetorical devices or stylistic devices.
0: But if you don't recognize on the page a rhetorical device, you can't...
1: Oh, exactly. ...even
0: without naming it, if you can't recognize it or know that it's happened, you can't exploit it.
1: We're talking about the, uh, the third of uh, Cicero's five canons of rhetoric. I mean, he talks about invention, which is coming up with the argument, arrangement, which speaks for itself style that's the one we're talking about now the style of the language the way that the ideas are being expressed and then of course the last two being memory and the one that most of this conversation has been about which is the delivery i wonder if the lack of respect
0: for that old worn out Pejorative term rhetoric, we dismiss things as rhetorical, merely rhetorical, so rhetoric has a a very bad connotation in most people 's vocabulary. I wonder if this is this flatness of delivery, this undifferentiated delivery is simply an an avoidance of being elitist or simply an avoidance of being. Performing a lack of, one wants to avoid a lack of spontaneity, but you have argued and very eloquently that the embrace of these techniques, far from uh, robbing us of the apparent naturalness and spontaneity of an idea, actually confer the ability to appear freshly discovered.
1: Exactly. The problem is that the point that you just made assumes that most of the population has not shifted to a belief that undifferentiated nothingness is in fact spontaneity now it's a cliche
0: for naturalness isn't it and particularly with beginning film actors oh
1: absolutely i was going to say there's no no voice it's all whispered and uh... so much so much of it with those actors who never had stage training but started in front of a camera And of course, the the truth of the
0: matter is that when one is speaking something from the heart with passion, as most characters in plays are doing, because we discover them at at a point of crisis or a point of great uh, consternation, and they have lots of important things to say, and they've got to get them out, that leads and always has done to greater expressivity, greater range. I got to say this to you, you know, I need you to know this. I want you to do something, you know, all of these... Moments of extremists that we encounter out characters in play argue for the very thing that you are arguing for.
1: And I'm picking these words and combining them in this way and delivering them in this way because I need to get this point across. I need to create these ideas and images and land them on you. And you want me to understand them beyond all else. So
0: that's going to bump up your diction. You're going to hit exactly. the consonants because you want me to understand, and uh, and you want me to believe, and you want me to do something as as a result of what you're saying. So the dedication of a, of an actor to the to the strong actions of his or her role should lead to the variety that has been so abandoned in the name of truthfulness and spontaneity. It's a strange thing, isn't it? Yes.
1: Have you found over the years, Paul? That in your accent coaching, that a lot of actors use the fact that they're doing an accent other than theirs as almost an excuse not to create the specificity and the differentiation and the clarity of both inner life actions and speaking. Uh, yeah. that they, that they would if they were, if they were using, using their own accent.
0: And of course, many actors avoid specificity because they know they're not doing the accent correctly. So, so if you, you know, so if you're doing a Northern Ireland accent and you, and you close it down and you, and you hardly have any room in the vowel space, <laughs> you know, you, you can't be, you can't be accused of doing it wrong because you can't, people can't hear what you've done in the first place.
1: Exactly. I can remember one session that I was doing goes back to what we were saying before about my sense that accents are far from the most important things uh, that i teach i was working with a young man back in my la days who had been a regular on a series and um after the series went off the air he had gone two years without a callback, and he came in uh to learn an accent that he needed to work on for uh for an audition, and uh, I said to him, "Look, we've spent ten minutes uh, tweaking the accent a little bit. Can we deal now with the reason why you're probably not getting any callbacks, which has nothing to do with the accent?"
0: Because no one was ever hired because they could do an accent.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it took me a half an hour to convince him that he needed to make choices with the, with the text uh, for the callback that he w- that he had that he needed to commit to something, that he needed to use the words. And his fear was, if I make those choices, if I get specific, they might not be the choices that the casting director or the director wants. Hmm. And yeah. I said, it's almost like, is it Pascal's wager? You're saying, I'm guaranteed not to get results being non-specific. But I'm afraid to get specific because they might not like it. I mean, it's, 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 it's absurd.
0: We've talked a lot about actors here, but of course, so many people speak professionally and, um, even those who don't do it professionally have to speak in everyday life. Professors and lecturers, it's, I'm ashamed of my fellow academics, the poor quality of most people's lectures. And I have, I don't know if you've been to a conference lately and I heard someone read their paper, but there's a, oh. there's a, re- a retreat from anything like rhetorical skill or persuasiveness or even vividness. It's, it's a flat,
1: regurgitated delivery that is, is the style in delivering an academic paper. Oh, yeah. And with the PowerPoint on the screen simply reflecting the same words that are being spoken and distracting from the speaker. No, it's awful. Again, I uh, from time to time, I've done in-service workshops at my own school or at uh, some other school's. For the teachers, I mean, how to be listened to, how not to be boring.
0: Surely that is job one for an actor, for anyone.
1: Not be boring. Isn't that job one? To me, it certainly is. But that same point goes for um, preachers, politicians, company executives, lawyers. Some of the most fun I've ever had was the uh, few times that I've gone to the University of Connecticut Law School while they were working on mock appellate court types of things where they already had the the script of their brief and it was you know let's spend maybe 90 minutes of their entire time in law school looking at some of these principles of specificity and variety and clarity
0: they are called and, advocates aren't they uh, absolutely, uh, absolutely. And if you're not advocating with passion and persuasiveness then you're failing
1: Absolutely.
0: Read us the preamble and lay its reasoning bare for us.
1: Okay. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. It's an important thing we're doing. We're ordaining and establishing a
0: Constitution. If it's simply a liturgical recitation of something long dead that died on the page 200 years ago, (laughs) then how will it ever be fresh and vivid again unless you do something such as you just treated us to? Let's move on to your workshop poster, discovering and revealing and physicalizing individual words and their relationship with each other that can create the ideas, intensify the images, and fuel the actions I guess you've you've just demonstrated that to us. Is there anything more to
1: say? The one principle that you just read from that poster that i haven 't talked about specifically yet although I've, i I think I was uh, illustrating it a moment ago. physicalize the idea or the action or the delivery yeah so that's
0: that's a thing that that most people would say well hold on a a word is an abstraction it's a sign for something it has no solidity it has no physicality it is an abstraction it is an approximation it's just a word
1: how do we physicalize a word look at what you just did in terms of physicalizing Just a word. (laughs) What you just did was to illustrate the physicalization of those words. The single most important vocal component or speech component in what I call physicalizing the action is syllable duration. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If it were done when it is done, to well it were done quickly. If it were done when it is done, then to well it were done quickly. I'm not even putting pitch change into that. Right. I'm just elongating the stressed syllable of the operative words. Yeah, and in those
0: three dynamics of, of pitch, duration, and volume, you've got an infinitely complex series of possibilities for every important word in an utterance. Oh, Yes. Verse speaking has disappeared from drama school curricula. I, I, I hate to get back onto theatre when, in fact, speaking is common to all of us on this planet. But I've heard the my coaches, my my fellows at the Royal Shakespeare Company in, in Stratford bemoan the downgrading of verse speaking in the curricula at the drama school. So we get these TV and film trained actors coming out of drama school and uh, going into the royal shakespeare company when they haven't really been trained as well as their a generation or two of their predecessors so the, so the rhythm which is the the heart stuff of life has has tended to go from
1: these great verse dramas oh yeah but even the royal academy of dramatic art and um royal shakespeare company even in the early heyday they they went through patterns and cycles themselves. There was a time uh, I'd say probably in the fifties and sixties when there was so much stress on what for want of a better term I'll call the beautifully rounded tones. Oh from the blues of fire.
0: The, oh ab- the brightest yeah. isn't that word or isn't that the wonderful yeah. adjective
1: that And uh Richard Burton is a, uh, I think a good example of this. I mean, I think that Richard Burton was an incredibly good contemporary actor, modern actor. But I thought most of the Shakespeare that he did was dreadful because it was, it was a case of presenting these wonderful tones with the beautiful, RP that he switched to from his original original Welsh. And the occasional break in the voyage. So an example of that would be Richard Burton doing the beginning of St. Crispin's Day in Henry V. If we are marked to die, we are now to do our country loss. What? If we are marked to die, we are now to do our country loss. I mean, there were no ideas, no concepts. Even mark rylance who violates every conceivable principle of uh of iambic pentameter at least he clarifies the ideas and separates the uh, the the images and hits you with the message when he's uh, when he's doing that speech
0: no one has ever turned verse into prose more effectively than mark rylance oh it, it's, it's some of it is absolutely amazing and you forgive him for it because he's so skillful at it.
1: Almost. <laughs> <laughs> Come, let us, is it, beat upon the ground and tell sad tales about the deaths of kings? What other actor would make the choice to start laughing in the middle of that line? <laughs> yes. Come, let us sit
0: upon the ground and sit tell, upon the, sad, g- tell sad stories.
1: yeah he let us sit upon the ground and tell... <laughs>
0: sad stories about the deaths of kings what a brilliant choice um, oh. and, and completely justified he's amazing talk to me about your feelings that if a technique shows then it's being done wrong i mean i'm sure you agree with me that if it's if the training shows if the technique the, shows the, then, the fear- then you haven't put that technique to service correctly
1: It is the very concern that keeps most actors from developing the technique and integrating it into a sense of spontaneity.
0: In a sense, they sit on the fence. They don't declare their hand. They don't show us the hand. So we can't accuse them of being wrong because we can't see what's in their hand at all. Exactly. so So you've got to commit to one way or another, right or wrong, commit to it. Persuade us of the rightness of your of your action, of your choice.
1: Yes. I say, again, another line in that in that poster of mine is that to seem spontaneous, the discovery or the revealing and the connecting process must be both reflected by and reinforced by the elements of vocal variety. So if you're still at the point where, if it were, done when tis done then to well it were done quickly <laughs> well you know a lot of my students start that way that's what their first attempt in class sounds like no i don't want that on the stage and i don't want that in even the third or fourth rehearsal but if they're not willing to do that just to create the physical changes the vocal variety and then go back to the inner life and say, now what if that pitch jump, if it were, what is it I want to say? If it were done, done when it is done, then for so. well it were done, how? If it were Withly. over. Yeah, so the,
0: the two different connotations of done uh, can only be revealed by contrasting those two instances.
1: Exactly. That's why I'm so insistent on these two concepts of discover or reveal. Discover, I'm not sure what I'm going to say, but I'm going to find it at a new pitch. And then when the students uh, object, well, what if I absolutely know what I'm going to say? Say, okay, absolutely know what you're going to say, and hold back for a split second about revealing it. Let them wait. Or while
0: the character, him or herself, is sort of thumbing through their Rolodex or Scanning their inner thesaurus for precisely the right word. That coining of the, of the word that they choose is that much more effective because, exactly. because we have a sense of things contemplated but not uttered. And
1: that thumbing through the roller decks, I love that image that you used. That thumbing through the roller decks can be done either during short pauses or Slight elongation of the syllable on the word prior to the discovery.
0: I'm going to switch to another topic and you've heard me riff about this before. The current addiction to the little words, to the pronouns, the conjunctions, the auxiliary verbs and the adverbs like not. If there's, I'm so sick of hearing newsreaders who every time there's the word not is in a sentence.
1: Not the, and two that, and four and at. And it's, I won't say it's primarily news readers because you certainly have uh, actors and um, talk show hosts doing the same thing. Can you explain that? I, mean, I think Kristen Linklater talks about
0: it as an airline cabin speech. <laughs> Please remain in your seat until the plane has come to a complete stop at the gate. <laughs> And the cap you know, and the and the captain has turned off the no smoke. Please remain in your seat yeah. until the plane has come to a complete and final stop at the gate and the captain has turned off the fastened seat belts. Exactly. Side. Have you any theory about why the big, longer operative words in the sentences are the ones that we tend to avoid these days in favor of the little connective words? Have you any
1: theory? ...as to why that has become so widespread? Here's, here's a partial theory. Very often, especially in dramatic text and play scripts... ...the major idea, the most important operative words... ...are close to the ends of phrases or sentences. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. And with American English speakers... American English teaches us to trail off at the ends of sentences. If it were done, once it's done, to well it were done quickly. Yes. And I go back to that wonderful moment, uh, probably about 16 or 17 years ago, I was coaching on a show that was being directed by uh, a gentleman from the UK. And it didn't take very many rehearsals before the most frequent piece of feedback from the director was energy through to the ends of the lines please young american actors yes it's not as common in the uk but american english really reinforces it as i just demonstrated <laughs> really reinforces it i wonder if
0: part of what we're bemoaning as we, we old fuddy duddies we've got to uh, we've got to bemoan the passing of our culture Well, exit world we don't really recognise. I mean that's probably the way it's always been, but let's try not to be too Luddite about it and too old fogey about it. But I wonder if something of this has to do with what I call the tyranny of literacy. In those pre-literate societies who didn't have the straitjacket of of knowing how things were spelled and how they appeared on paper and everything was memorized and delivered orally in oral cultures, the oral tradition would never have had the, uh, the tyranny of the literacy. But now we, we're up there reading from a text, be it a lecture, be it, a, be it an argument in, in a courtroom. We know it exists on paper because we can see the piece of paper in the hand of the speaker. And our job as speakers is not to simply make audible what's on the paper. Our job is to get the words off the paper and reinterpret it and make it live again as an oral text. So perhaps in those situations when someone is reading from a teleprompter, from a piece of paper, from a book, the flatness and lack of variety that we have been bemoaning has to do with the tyranny of
1: literacy. May I coin that phrase? Yeah. The paper isn't what sends the idea to the listener, the paper reminds the speaker and regenerates the idea so that it can be, again, in as spontaneous a way as possible. So that the
0: audience audience can actually suspend their disbelief in the spontaneity. But they they know it's not spontaneous because they see a person up on the platform reading from from a script. But in a great speaker who can lift that text off of the page and deliver it freshly as if it were freshly minted, we will suspend our disbelief in the spontaneity of the act. And, of course, this is important for the audiobook reader too. Audiobooks are so so very important these days. I I did a wonderful podcast with Julia Whelan and uh, Tavia Gilbert earlier on, two of the great audiobook exponents of our time, and they have this amazing ability. Even though we know they're reading to us, we know they're reading to us. It's a book. And in Julia's case, she wrote the book. Yeah. And yet, and yet, the way that you bring the, the words off the page has more to do with the rules of the spoken language than the written language. Oh, Very much so. This has been a great conversation, David. Thank you so
1: very much. Oh, I have enjoyed this tremendously, Paul. And this also reminds me that we need to speak more often. <laughs> Off the air as
0: well. Let's do it. Let's do it. And thanks to you for joining David Allen Stern and me. I address many of the points about heightened language and rhetoric in my ebook, Voicing Shakespeare, available at my website, paulmeyer.com. Join me next time when the topic is Voices of the Caribbean. My guests will be Professors Elizabeth Montoya Stemann and Dylan Paul. Dylan has a special interest in Carnival and has done extensive research in Trinidad as a Fulbright Scholar. He's also Special Consultant to and Webmaster for IDEA, the International Dialects of English Archive. He is now a professor at the University of Idaho and has extensive acting credits on Broadway and with leading American theatre companies. Elizabeth lives in Kingston, Jamaica and holds an appointment at the Edna Manley School for the Performing Arts. Her scholarly work is on Caribbean voices. She is an associate editor for IDEA, contributing fascinating recordings of people from that region. She was enormously helpful when I was preparing my The Jamaican Dialect Guide for Actors. Voices of the Caribbean, next time on In a Matter of Speaking.